Section 30 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Part 30, Chapter 15, Delhi and Agra, Part 2. It is difficult to realize that Delhi has been the theatre of such a stirring and eventful history, as nowadays one strolls down the Chadni Chuk and notes the air of peace and contentment that pervades the whole city. It seems quite true, as Edwin Arnold says in his India Revisited, that Derby is now not more contentedly British than is Delhi. Whatever may be the faults of British rule in India, no impartial critic can say that the people are not in better hands than they have ever been before. One of the most interesting objects in the city is the Jama Mejid, the largest mosque in India and the second largest in all Islam, ranking next to St. Sophia at Constantinople. Broad flights of red sandstone steps lead up to handsome gateways surmounted by rows of small, milk-white marble domes or cupolas. Inside is a large quadrangular court, paved with broad slabs of sandstone, occupying the centre of this is a white marble reservoir of water. The mosque proper is situated on the west side of the quadrangle an oblong structure two hundred feet long by half that many in width ornamented and embellished by arabic inscriptions and three shapely white marble domes very elegant indeed is the pattern and composition of the floor each square slab of white marble having a narrow black border running round it like the border of a mourning envelope very charming also are the two graceful minarets at either end, 130 feet high, alternate strips of white marble and red sandstone, producing a very pretty and striking effect. In the northeastern corner of the quadrangle is a small cabinet containing the inevitable relics of the Prophet. Three separate guides have accumulated at my heels since entering the gate, and now a fourth, ancient and hopeful, appears to unravel, for the sahib's benefit, the mysteries of the little cabinet. Unlocking the door, he steps out of his slippers into the entrance, stooping beneath an iron rail that further bars the entrance. From an inner receptacle, he first produces some ancient manuscript, which he explains was written by the same scribes, who copied the Koran for Muhammad's grandson. Putting these carefully away, the ancient and hopeful then unwraps, very mysteriously, a handkerchief and reveals a small oblong tin box with a glass face. The casket contains what, upon casual observation, appears to be a piece of bark curling up at the edges. This, I am informed, however, 
is nothing less than the sole of one of Mohammed's sandals. Putting away this venerable relic of the great founder of Islam, the old Musulman assumes a look of profound importance and mystery. One would think from his expression and manners that he was about to reveal the sacrilegious gaze of an infidel nothing less than the prophet's fifth rib or the parings from his pet corn. Instead of these, he exhibits a flat piece of rock bearing marks resembling the shape of a man's foot, the imprint of Mohammed's foot, miraculously made. To one whose soulful gaze has been enraptured with an imprint of the first sultan's hand on the wall of St. Sophia, and the mosaic figure of the Virgin Mary persistently refusing to be painted out of sight on the dome of the same mosque, this piece of rock would scarcely seem to justify the vast display of reverence that is evidently expected of all visitors by the ancient and hopeful. But perhaps it is on account of the place of honour it occupies immediately preceding what is undoubtedly a very precious relic indeed, a relic that fills the worthy custodian with mystery and importance, or perchance mystery and importance have been found during his long and varied experience with the unsophisticated tourist excellent things to increase the volume of importance attached to the exhibited articles and the volume of peace in his exchequer at any rate the ancient and hopeful assumes more mystery and importance than ever as he uncovers a second tin casket with a glass front. Glued to the glass inside is a single coarse yellow hair about two inches long. The precious relic, which has a suspicious resemblance to a bristle, is considered the gem of the collection, being nothing less than a hair from the Prophet's venerable moustache. Mohammedans swear by the beard of the Prophet just as good Christians swear by the great horned spoon, or by a great Caesar's ghost, so that the possession of even this one poor little hair, surrounded as it is by a blue halo of suspicion as to its authenticity, sheds a ray of glory upon the great Yama Mejid, scarcely surpassed by its importance as the second largest mosque in the world. The two-inch yellow hair is considered the pièce de résistance of the collection, and the ancient and hopeful stows it away with all due reverence, strokes his henna-stained beard with the air of a man who has got successfully through a very important task, steps into his slippers and presents himself for peace. Peace is duly administered to him and his three salaaming associates, when, lo, a fifth candidate mysteriously appears, also smiling and salaaming expectantly. Although I haven't had the pleasure of a previous acquaintance with this gentleman, the easiest way to escape gracefully from the sacred esophit is to backsheesh him along with the others. These backsheesh considerations are, of course, small and immaterial matters, and one ought to feel extremely grateful to all concerned for the happy privilege of feasting one's soul with ever so brief a contemplation of the things in the cabinet. 
and more especially on the bristle-like yellow hair. These joy-inspiring objects, ramshackled from the storehouse of the musty past, fulfill the double mission of keeping alive the reverence of devout Mussulmans who visit the mosque, and keeping the ancient and hopeful well supplied with good accoups. My camera, having duly arrived together with a package of letters, which are always doubly welcome to a wanderer in distant lands, I prepare to resume my southward journey. The few days' rest has enabled me to recover from the wilting effects of riding in the terrific heat, and I have seen something of one of the most interesting points in all Asia. Delhi is sometimes called the home of Asia, which, it seems to me, is a very appropriate name to give it. Neatly clad and modest-looking females, native converts to Christianity, are walking in orderly procession to church, testaments in hand, as I wheel through the streets of Delhi on Sunday morning toward the Agra Road. Very interesting is it to see these dusky daughters of heathendom arrayed in modest white muslin gowns, their lithe and graceful forms freed from the barbarous jewellery that distinguishes the persons of their unconverted sisters. Very charming do they look in their Christianized simplicity and self-contained demeanor as they walk quietly and at a becoming Sabbath-day pace, two by two down the Chandni Chuk. They present an instructive comparison to the straggling groups of heathen damsels who watch them curiously as they walk past, and then proceed to chant idolatrous songs, apparently in a spirit of wanton raillery, at the Christian maidens and their simple, unornamented attire. The fair heathens of Delhi have a sort of naughty Parisian reputation throughout the surrounding country, and so there is nothing surprising in this exhibition of wanton hilarity directed at these more straight-laced converts to the religion of the Ferengis. The heathen damsels arrayed in very worldly costumes consisting of flaring red, yellow, and blue garments the whole barbaric and ostentatious array of nose-rings, ear-rings, armlets, anklets, rupee necklaces and pendants, and the multifarious dewgaws of Hindu womankind, look surpassingly wicked and saucy in comparison with their converted sisters. The gentle converts try hard to regard their heathen songs with indifference, and to show by their very correct deportment the superiority of meekness, virtue, and Christianity over gaudy clothes, vulgar silver jewellery, and heathenism. The whole scene reminds one very forcibly of a gang of wicked street boys at home poking fun at a Sunday school procession or a platoon of Salvation Army soldiers parading the streets past the queen's gardens and the fort down a long street of native shops and out of the delhi gate i wheel past the grim battlements of ferozabad along a rather flinty road that extends for ten miles after which commences again the splendid kunkah villages are numerous and the country populous 
tombs and the ruins of cities dot the landscape pahni chowkis where yellow brahmins dispense water to thirsty wayfarers line the road and at one point three splendid massive archways marking some place that has lost its former importance span my road hindus are now the prevailing race and their religion finds frequent expression in idol temples and shrines beneath little roadside groves the night is spent on the porch of a dak bungalow just outside the walls of pulwal a typical hindu city with all its curious display of hideous idols idolatrous paintings and beautiful carved temples with gilded spires the groves about the bungalow are literally swarming with green parrots in big flocks they sweep past near my charpoy producing a great ring commotion with their wings a flock of parrots may be so far aloft as to be well nigh beyond the range of human vision in the ethereal depths but the noise of their wings will be plainly audible a two hours terrific downpour delays me at the village of hodel the next day and affords an opportunity to inspect an ordinary little hindu village temple the captain of the police tana sends a tall sikh policeman to show me in the temple is only a small tapering marble edifice about thirty feet high surmounted by a gilded crescent and resting on a hollow plinth the hollow of which provides quarters for the priest one is expected to remove his footgear before going inside the same as in a mohammedan mosque a taper is burning in a niche of the wall mural paintings of snakes many-handed gods bulls monsters and mythical deities create a cheap and garish impression in the centre of the floor is a marble linga and grouped around it a miniature man woman and elephant before these are laid offerings of flowers the interior of the temple is not more than eight feet square a mere cell in which the deities are housed the worshippers mostly perform their prostrations on the plinth outside the villagers gather in a crowd about the temple and watch every movement of my brief inspection they seem pleased at the sight of a sahib honouring their religion by removing his shoes and carefully respecting their feelings when i descend from the plinth they fall back and greet me with smiles and salaams the rain clears up and i forge ahead finding the kunkah roadbed none the worse for the drenching it has just received hour by hour one gets more surprised at the multitudes of pedestrians on the road neither rain nor sun seems to affect their number some of the costumes observed are quite startling in their ingenuity and effect one garment much affected by the rajput women are yellowish shawls or mantles fulkaris in which are set numerous small circular mirrors about the circumference of a silver half dollar the effect of these in the bright indian sun as the wearer trudges along in the distance is as though she were all ablaze with gems whenever i wheel past a group of rajput females 
they either stand with averted faces or cover up their heads with their shawls. The road inspector's bungalow at Chati affords me shelter, and an intelligent native gentleman who speaks a misleading quality of English supplies me with a supper of curried rice and fowl. Hard by is a Hindu temple, whence at sunset issue the sweetest chimes imaginable from a peal of silver-toned bells. My charpoy is placed on the porch facing the east, and soon the rotund face of the rising moon floats above the trees, and the silvery tinkle of the bells is followed by a chorus of jackals paying their noisy compliments to its loveliness. My slumbers can hardly be said to be unbroken to-night. Three pariah dogs have taken a fancy to my quarters. Two of them sit on their haunches and howl dismally in response to the jackals, while number three reclines sociably beneath my charpoy and growls at the others as though constituting himself my protector. Some Indian Romeo is serenading his dusky Juliet in the neighboring town. Flocks of roistering parrots go whirring past at all hours of the night, and a too liberal indulgence in red-hot curry keeps me on the verge of a nightmare almost till the silvery tinkle-tinkle of the Brahmin bells announces the break of day. Cynics have sometimes denounced Christians as worse than the heathens, in requiring loud church bells to summon them to worship. Such, it appears, are putting the case rather thoughtlessly. Mohammedans have their muezzins, while both Christians and idolaters have their chiming bells. Neither Christians nor Mohammedans nor heathens need these agencies to summon them to their respective worldly enjoyments, so that, taken all in all, we are pretty much alike. Cynics, notwithstanding to the contrary, we are little or no worse than the heathens. A loudly wailing woman with her head covered up and supported between two companions who are vainly trying to console her, and a party conveying two cassowaries, a pair of white peacocks, and a kangaroo from Calcutta to some rajah's menagerie up country, are among the curiosities encountered on the road the following day spending the afternoon and night in the quarters of the third dragoon guards at mutra cantonment i resume my journey early in the morning dodging from shelter to shelter to avoid frequent heavy showers it is but thirty-five miles from mutra to agra and notwithstanding showers and heat the distance is covered by half-past ten wheeling at this pace however is an indiscretion and the completion of the stretch is signalized by a determination to seek shade and quiet for the remainder of the day. Once again the sociable officers of the garrison tender me the hospitality of their quarters, and the ensuing day is spent in visiting that wonder of the world, the Taj Mahal, Akbar's fort, and other wonderful monuments of the palmy days of the Mughal Empire finer and more imposing in appearance even than the fort at Delhi, is that at Agra. Walls of red sandstone, seventy feet high, and a mile and a half in circuit, picturesquely crenellated, and with imposing gateways and a deep, broad moat, 
complete a work of stupendous dimensions. One is overcome with a sense of grandeur upon first beholding these Indian palace forts, and after seeing nothing more imposing than mud walls in Persia and Afghanistan, they are magnificent-looking structures. The contrast, too, of the red sandstone walls and gates and ramparts with the white marble building of the royal quarters is very striking. The domes of the latter, seen at a distance, seem like snow-white bubbles resting ever so lightly and airily upon the darker mass. One almost expects to see them rise up and float away on the passing zephyrs like balloons. Passing inside over a drawbridge and through the massive Delhi gate, we proceed into the interior of the fort, traversing a broad ascent of sandstone pavement. Everything around us shows evidence of unstinted outlay in design, execution, and completion of detail in the carrying out of a stupendous undertaking. Everywhere the spirit of Akbar the Magnificent seems to hover amid his creations. One emerges from the covered gateway and the walled, corrugated causeway upon the parade ground. Crenellated walls, a park of artillery, and roomy English barracks greet the vision. Sentinels, sepoy sentinels in huge turbans, and English sentinels in white sun helmets are pacing their beats. But not on these does the gaze of the visitor rest. Straight ahead of him there rises above the red sandstone walls and the bare parade ground three marble domes, white as newly fallen snow, and just beyond are seen the gilt pinnacles of Akbar's palace. We wander among the beautiful marble creations, gaze in wonder at the snowy domes supported on marble pillars, mosaiced with jasper, agate, bloodstone, lapis lazuli, and other rare stones. We stand on the white marble balustrades, carved so exquisitely as to resemble lace-work, and we look out upon the yellow waters of the Jumna, flowing sluggishly along seventy feet below. Here is where the Grand Mogul Akbar used to sit and watch elephant fights and boat races. There are none of these to be seen now, but that does not mean that the prospect is either tame or uninteresting. The banks of the Jumna are alive with hundreds of dusky natives, engaged in washing clothes and spreading linen out in the sun to bleach. The prospect beyond is a revelation of vegetable luxuriance and wealth, and of historical reminiscence in the shape of ruins and tombs. One's eyes, however, are drawn away from the contemplation of the picturesque life below, and from the prospect of grove and garden and crumbling tombs, by the mesmerism of the crowning glory of all Indian architectural triumphs, the famous Taj. This matchless mausoleum rests on the right-hand bank of the Jumna, about a mile downstream. The Taj, with its marvellous beauty and snowy whiteness, seems to cast a spell over the beholder. From the first, one can no more keep his eyes off it when it is within one's range of vision than he can keep from breathing.
it draws one's attention to itself as irresistibly as though its magnetism were a living and breathing force exerted directly to that end it is the subtlety of its unapproachable loveliness commanding homage from all beholders whether they will or no we turn away from it a while however and find ample scope for admiration close at hand we tread the marble aisles of the pearl mosque considered the most perfect gem of its kind in existence one stands in its courtyard and finds himself in the chaste and exclusive companionship of snowy marble and blue sky one feels almost ill at ease as though conscious of being an imperfect thing marring perfection by his presence quiet as a nun breathless with adoration one enthusiastic visitor exclaims in an effort to put his sentiments and impressions of the moti mesjid into words like this adoring traveller the average visitor will rest content to be carried away by the contemplation of its chaste beauty without prying around for possible defects in the details of the particular school of architecture it graces he will have little patience with carpin critics who point to the beautiful screens of floriated marble tracery and say nuns should not wear collars of point lace from the moti mesjid we visit the shish mahal or mirrored bathrooms the chambers and passages here remind me of the mirrored rooms of persia here as there thousands of tiny mirrors are used in working out various intricate designs my three uniformed companions at once reflect not less than half a regiment of british soldiers therein from the fort we drive in a native gharry to the taj a mile drive through suburban scenery plantain gardens groves and ruins in approaching the garden of the taj one passes through a bazaar where the skilful hindu artisans are busy making beautiful inlaid tables inkstands plates and similar fancies as well as models of the taj out of white jaipur marble these are the hereditary descendants and successors of the men who in the palmy days of the mogul power spent their lives in decorating the royal palaces and tombs with mosaics and tracery nowadays their skill is expended on mere articles of virtue to be sold to european tourists and english officers some of them are occasionally employed by the indian government to repair the work desecrated by vandals during the mutiny and under the purely commercial government of the east india company one curious phase of this work is that the men employed to replace with imitations the original stones that have been stolen receive several times higher pay than the men in akbar's time who did such splendid work that it is not to be approached these days several months imprisonment is now the penalty of prying out stones from the mosaic work of the taj this lovely structure has been described so often by travellers that one can scarce venture upon a description without seeming to repeat what has already been said by others one of the best descriptions of its situation and surroundings is given by bayard taylor 
he says the taj stands on the bank of the jumna rather more than a mile to the eastward of the fort of agra it is approached by a handsome road cut through the mounds left by the ruins of ancient palaces it stands in a large garden enclosed by a lofty wall of red sandstone with arched galleries around the interior and entered by a superb gateway of sandstone inlaid with ornaments and inscriptions from the koran in white marble outside this grand portal however is a spacious quadrangle of solid masonry with an elegant structure intended as a caravanserai on the opposite side whatever may be the visitor's impatience he cannot help pausing to notice the fine proportions of these structures and the massive style of their construction passing under the open demi-vault whose arch hangs high above you an avenue of dark italian cypress appears before you down its centre sparkles a long row of fountains each casting up a single slender jet on both sides the palm the banyan and feathery bamboo mingle their foliage the song of birds meets your ears and the odor of roses and lemon flowers sweetens the air down such a vista and over such a foreground rises the taj of the taj itself fault has been found with its proportions by severe critics like the party who regards the moti mejid's nun as faulty because she wears a point-lace collar but the ordinary visitor will find room for nothing but admiration and wonder it is hard to believe that there is any defect even in its proportions for so perfect do these latter appear that one is astonished to find that it is a taller building than the kutub minar one would never guess it to be anywhere near so tall as two hundred and forty-three feet the building rests on a plinth of white marble eighteen feet high and a hundred yards square at each corner of the plinth stands a minaret also of white marble and a hundred and thirty-seven feet high the mausoleum itself occupies the central space measuring in depth and width one hundred and eighty-six feet the entire affair is of white jaipur marble resting upon a lower platform of sandstone a thing of perfect beauty and of absolute finish in every detail it might pass for the work of a genii who knew naught of the weaknesses and ills with which mankind are beset it is not a great national temple erected by a free and united people it owes its creation to the whim of an absolute ruler who was free to squander the resources of the state in commemorating his personal sorrows or his vanity another distinguished visitor commenting on the criticisms of those who profess to have discovered defects says the taj is like a lovely woman abuse her as you please but the moment you come into her present you submit to its fascination if to her share some female errors fall look in her face and you'll forget them all passing beneath the vaulted gateway we find a signboard 
telling that the best place from which to view the Taj is from the roof of the gateway. A flight of steps leads us to the designated vantage point where the tropic garden, the fountains, the twin mosques in the far corners, the river, the minarets, and above all the Taj itself lay spread out before us for our inspection. The scene might well conjure up a vision of paradise itself. The glorious Taj, so light it seems, so airy and so like a fabric of mist and moonbeams, with its great dome soaring up, a silvery bubble, that it is difficult, even at a few hundred yards' distance, to believe it a creation of human hands. While gazing on the Taj, men let their cigars go out, and ladies drop their fans without noticing it. Descending the steps again, we pass inside, and again pause to survey it from the end of the avenue. An element of the ridiculous here appears in the person and appeals of an old Hindu fruit-vendor. This hopeful agent of Pomona squats beside a little tray, and as we stand and feast our eyes on the sublimest object in the world of architecture, he persistently calls our attention to a dozen or two half-decayed mangoes and custard apples that comprise his stock in trade. We pass down the cypress aisle and invade the plinth. Hundreds of natives, both male and female, are wandering about it. The dazzling whiteness of the promenade is in striking contrast to the color of their own bodies. As the groups of women walk about, their toe rings and ankle ornaments jingle against the marble, and their particolored raiment and barbarous dewgaws look curiously out of place here. The place seems more appropriate to vestal virgins, robed in white, than to dusky Hindu females, arrayed in all the colors of the rainbow. Many of these people are pilgrims who have come hundreds of miles to see the Taj, and to pay tribute to the memory of Shah Jahan, and his faithful wife, the Princess Arjumund, whose mausoleum is the Taj. Two young men we see, leading an aged female, probably their mother, down the steps to the vault, where side by side the remains of this royal pair repose. The old lady is going down there to deposit a rose or two upon Arjumund's tomb, a tender tribute paid today by thousands to her memory. We climb the spiral stairs of one of the Mayoars, and sit out on the little pavilion at the top, watching the big, ugly crocodiles float lazily on the surface of the Jumna at our feet. Before departing, we enter the Taj and examine the wonderful mosaics on the cenotaphs and the encircling screenwork. This inlaid flowerwork is quite in keeping with the general magnificence of the mausoleum, many of the flowers containing not less than twenty-five different stones, assorted shades of agate, carnelian, jasper, bloodstone, lapis lazuli, and turquoise. Ere leaving, we put to test the celebrated echo, that beautiful echoing that floats and soars overhead in a long, delicious undulation, fading away so slowly that you hear it after it is silent, as you see or seem to see a lark that you have been watching 
after it is swallowed up into the blue vault of heaven. We leave this garden of enchantment by way of one of the mosques. An Indian boy is licking up honey from the floor of the holy edifice with his tongue. We look up and perceive that enough rich honeycomb to fill a bushel measure is suspended on one of the beams, and so richly laden is it that the honey steadily drips down. The sanctity of the place, I suppose, prevents the people molesting the swarm of wild bees that have selected it for their storehouse, or from relieving them of their honey. The Taj is said to have cost about two million pounds, even though most of the labor was performed without pay, other than rations of grain to keep the workmen from starving. Twenty thousand men were employed upon it for twenty-two years, and for its inlaid work gems and precious stones came in camel-loads from various countries. The next morning I bid farewell to Agra, more than satisfied with my visit to the Taj. It stands, unique and distinct from anything else one sees the whole world round. Nothing one could say about it can give the satisfaction derived from a visit, and no word painting can do it justice. End of section 30